what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thanks to everyone for listening and sharing. I, I really appreciate it. With me today is the first brother of a podcast guest. I'm talking to J.K. Sparks. He's the head of performance marketing at Flatfile. And we were talking about, uh, before we started recording, about us being in sales and marketing and some of the least trusted people in the industry, but we're really not bad people. So (laughs) with that, J.K., welcome. And thanks for making the time on a Saturday morning. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. Excited to be here. Yeah. So a uh, big fan, uh, awesome friend of your brother, Tyler. Um, and just wanted to ask, what were your parents feeding you when you were growing up to have two big brains in the same household? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not really sure. Uh, I do know that my brother was uh, very much into books as a kid. His punishment was um, getting books taken away, which was super interesting. And you would often find him up till three in the morning under his covers with a flashlight reading a book, <laughs> which is hilarious to me. Um, and I don't know, I just kind of followed in his footsteps and he invested a lot in me and uh, I love reading, I love learning. So it's really what it is. <laughs> is there a book that you remember from your early childhood that had an impact that um, still resonates with you? Was there one that's just like, holy cow, this transformed my experience and relationship with books? Mm, That's a great question. Uh, I'm not really sure. Um, (laughs) Well, we can come back to that. You can parallel process that and come back to that. But yeah, let's get get into sales and marketing because it's been my role for many, many years and I'm a student of it. And as I broaden my skill set into marketing and let's expand on that, you know, least trusted people because, you know, we, we influence people, right. As salespeople mm-hmm. and as marketers. But, um, I, I like to think, and hopefully that I have a soul and a conscience and I'm there to truly help the customer, but, um, take me through that philosophy and I'm just going to turn it over to you and shut up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, I think that we get a bad rap because of just the, that idea right there. It's we are trying to sell people on something, right? I mean, most salespeople are driven by commission and driven by money and the average consumer knows that. So they know that when they go buy a car, for example, that if the sales rep is capable of ripping, ripping them off, they're going to make more money, right? And they're going to be able to just, line their pockets. So, and no one likes being sold. Like they don't like the feeling of being sold. They want to feel like they got a good deal and that they chose the right product. So I think that over time, just this idea of being sold to as a consumer, we slowly just mistrusted uh, sales and marketing and advertising, right? I mean, there's the whole like snake oil salesman idea and um, just messaging being bombarded at the consumer and it's a lot of the time it was 
not true, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of the claims and such were not true, which is why the consumer started to mistrust those professionals. Um, so yeah, that's now we're in an age where uh, actually an interesting point is uh, I don't know if you've heard of Matthew Sweezy. Um, he's a market analyst at Salesforce, but he no. just recently released a book called The Context Marketing Revolution, which uh, I've already read through a couple times and it has become one of my favorite marketing books um, to date and had a huge impact already on just how I think and process marketing and customer experience. Um, I'm adding that but, to my cart right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I highly re- I highly recommend it. Okay, it's cool. Phenomenal. But he talks about uh, this specific date, June 24th, 2009. And it's the idea that we moved from the limited era, the limited media era to the infinite media era on that day. But it wasn't actually discovered that that happened until 2017. Um, and what that means is that up until that day, consumers were captive to brands, right? So brands were actually the primary drivers of messaging. And on June 24th, 2009, it's been traced back to that day that it's the day that consumers and devices actually became the largest creators of content in the world. Um, So consumers kind of took control of of the messaging and of, of the narrative. So um, it's this idea that, uh, you know, now noise is louder than ever. And the only way to break through that noise is context. So context has replaced attention. Um, you know, in the, in the limited media era, Sweezy talks about how marketing and advertising uh, used attention seeking methods to distract individuals away from a task at hand, right? So this is like mass advertising, mass marketing, TV, billboards. It's not contextual. Like you're watching a TV show or a football game and then you get a random message that's telling you that you should buy a product. So now we're like, we're way past that. I mean, I can't stand TV advertising, right? I mean, I've I've been so conditioned (laughs) by Netflix. Yeah. Um, And uh, now context is is king and it's seeking to to match a brand with a task at hand right so it's about creating experience that fulfills a consumer's desire in the moment not an attention seeking or attention grabbing message so it's yeah super interesting book he goes into a lot of detail about all of that but it's it's one way that sales and marketing can move away from becoming that you know, not, not trusted person, um, because you're giving power back to the consumer to make the decision. That's, that's interesting. And one of my favorite Instagram feeds is influencers in the wild. And you were talking about people creating content and this is, this feed is people capturing people (laughs) recording themselves to upload to Instagram. So (laughs) it's typically from like balconies or something, you know, where people are looking down on the street and they just capture people like doing seven or eight takes of the hair flip and all this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, I have to ask, did I introduce, did I say what your title and your company was? You're the head of performance mm-hmm. marketing. Okay, good. Yep. I have a quarantine brain. So like my vocabulary is going, <laughs> going down. So I just wanted to make sure <laughs> I mentioned flat file for you. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And it, it's uh, amazing, right? Because having the, I guess the power to the people to, I don't know if that's what uh, Matthew's talking about, but it, mm-hmm. it really, you have to transform and adapt on how your message gets out. Totally. Exactly. Like, I mean, it's just the idea that individuals have replaced businesses as the dominant creators of noise. Right. So um, it's actually like, in, his, in the book, he talks about how consumers make three times the noise of all businesses combined, which is madness, right? And, and so because of that, the noise has become far too great for humans to manage on their own. And that's where artificial intelligence steps in, right? And that's what helps contextualize it. So it's all about creating an experience. I mean, if you Google something and I Google something, we'll probably get a slightly different experience based on our history. Um, same thing with, with like Facebook, right? In a Facebook feed, you're being delivered contextual messages based on their algorithm. Um, and that's why it's not chronological order. So like you may see a post that was a few minutes ago, right next to a post that was a week ago. Um, and it's all based on this idea of what you're interested in as a consumer, what your, what your close sphere is interested in, right? That's why you know, people are like, oh, I was talking about cat food and I got an ad about cat food. Well, it might also be that your, your sphere is interested in cats and they've been looking at cat food online and there's a lookalike audience and you're in that lookalike audience from a cat food brand. So you're being delivered an ad about cat food. Um, so it's, it's super interesting how, how that all works. And uh, it's just the engagement on that also drives the context right so like how your sphere is engaging with content how you're engaging with content is going to alter your experience moving forward so that raises a really interesting question about the ai and the context and the why and i'll put this into kind of a, a real simple story like my entrepreneur clothing company i was looking at Spanx, the uh, women's mm-hmm. clothing line to see how an undergarment was photographed because that's what my product is it goes under a jersey it goes under a jacket so i was like well how do you display something that people typically don't see when they're out in public and so for probably two weeks i was getting served up ads from spanx from victoria's secret from all this and i was like uh, you guys knew I went to your website, but you didn't know why. And right. when you mentioned AI, is it getting closer to understanding the why people are visiting sites and is it helping craft and refine the message? Is it getting closer to that? Yeah. I mean, I, I totally think so. Um, that's an interesting case, right? Like it, not sure how AI would, would be able to understand that you were looking at that just for, the, the purposes you were looking at it for. Um, but uh, it is, it's moving more towards intent, right? Which is, right. It's, it's why keyword stuffing doesn't work anymore in content. I mean, that, that was easy to do a decade ago because that, that's what Google's algorithm was built on, right? It was, it was simply relevance of the search term based on the content, but it wasn't about intent. And now it's about intent. So why are you looking for that online? Why are you searching that topic online? And Google now is looking at, okay, 
what's the searcher's intent on that? When they click through to a piece of content, was their question answered, right? Did they go back to the search engine results page mm. or did they bounce? Did they leave? Did they get their question answered? Did they stay on that website that they went to and continue consuming content from that website, from that brand? And that actually gets you better placement than just keyword stuffing. So it's when, when you're going and creating content as a marketing organization, like topic, topical content is important, but it's also like, why are they searching for that topic? What's the intent behind it? Mm -hmm. And are you answering that intent on the first pass and providing value? And Google knows that, right? They can, they can figure that out um, based on behavior of the website visitor. So I think that's super important and that's going to drive AI, continue, continue to drive AI, especially as more content is created. Um, and that's why engagement is, is so important. It's, it's, it's what drives the entire experience. That's fascinating. And <clears throat> I want to ask, um, like, how difficult is your job now? And I want to sort of, uh, I hope I'm not oversimplifying it. So like when I go back to advertising, let's just say if when there was only print and television, you had to design an ad, you bought space and it went out. But how hard is your job when so much of this is kind of a black box? Like you don't have access to Google's algorithm. You don't have access to LinkedIn or Facebook's algorithm. So are you sort of after the fact looking at things and forming opinions? How does that all work and how hard is that? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, when I started my marketing career, it was a little bit, it was right around the time that, that the right around June 24, 2009. <laughs> so right when that, that shift was, was beginning <laughs> to happen, and, you know, like when I first, when I was a marketing intern, I was doing e-blasts. So it was really very minimal segmentation of an audience. You were hitting hundreds of thousands of people at once with a singular message, just like you used to, you know, back in the 90s, right? Or, or even earlier. And it, the one thing that I like about where we are now is the ability to, to quickly iterate on on what you're doing, on the experience you're creating, on the messaging, on the content. And before it was like, hey, I have ma a massive budget and I'm gonna go buy a Super Bowl ad or I'm gonna go buy as many billboards as possible or I'm gonna buy as many TV ads as possible. And it was pretty difficult to measure those, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's a lot of brand awareness. Um, it's, it, there's not really a way to measure that. Whereas in today's world, you can have pretty in-depth granular attribution to marketing activities. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, it's kind of good and bad. It's good because you know what's working, what's not working. Um, but it can also be bad because you can become paralyzed by it, right? You're like, well, this data, like what's it telling us? We need to figure out exactly what we should do next. And it can really slow down the iterating and the, the testing. Um, so I think there's a, a balance that needs to be had between looking at the data and then actually making decisions and moving on that data. Um, and then there's also the whole fact of, is my data accurate, right? I've ran into that constantly because we're, we are just so drunk on data that you don't know, you don't know what to look at in some cases. Right. Um, so I, I actually like where we are now because I think that it's, it's more 
I think it's honestly more fun. You're not trying to craft a message that's trying to steal attention to a huge audience, right? Towards your brand. And you're not necessarily just going after other brands either, right? Before it was, how do we beat out other brands? How does Coke beat Pepsi? So, uh, or how does Pepsi beat Coke, right? Like that's what they're looking at. And now it's not so much beating out your competitor. Like it's not going after your competitor. It's creating a better experience than your competitor. It's making sure that those consumers are aligned with your brand because you've created an experience that resonated with them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's more fun. Is it more challenging? I don't know. Like it's a, it's a different challenge for for sure. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't marketing in the Mad Men era. Right. <laughs> um, but it's, it's just, it's a different challenge. That's a lot of fun. And um, I loved seeing how the marketing landscape has, has evolved, which is really why I got into marketing. It's, it's what kind of piqued my interest and it's been a lot of fun the last decade, just seeing how marketing has changed. Yeah. I'm fascinated by it. And as a recovering software engineer, I like the blend of technology and creativity. And um, when I was designing code and systems, like there was creativity and challenges there. But what I like about this aspect of it is that I get to actually see like the end result, some creative content, you know, pictures or movies or something like that. And it's a blend of diving into algorithms and performance and data. And I, I like the, the blend of that. It's, it's a, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a interesting challenge. Yeah, totally. And, and to your point of like not knowing the algorithm, I mean, that's part of the challenge. And, but, but the beautiful thing is that we can quickly test and quickly iterate in this digital world that we live in, right? It's, you can't quickly iterate on a TV ad. Like you're not going to be able to like <laughs> AB test that necessarily and, and, and change the messaging rapidly. Um, whereas now it's like, you should always be testing always and, and looking at the data and seeing what's working, what's resonating. Um, and just continually iterating on that, which is so much fun. Yeah. Well, the two things I wanted to move on to next, and this is where I'm fascinated by people that can think in two minds is the, the sales and marketing alignment, mm -hmm. because those are descriptions that I've found can be separated by a millimeter or by a mile. And <laughs> also you're in the, the B2B, the SaaS space. So selling, technology. And I want to talk about the sales and marketing alignment first. And then I think it's a unique challenge of creating something that lives on a web browser or lives on a computer and marketing that and having that experiential communicating that. So those are two very different, but broad questions, but those are things I'm fascinated to hear about. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, sales and marketing alignment is, uh, it's a hot topic. It's been a hot topic for years. Um, I feel like most marketing leaders are talking about it. Most sales leaders are talking about it. Uh, it's really been a huge movement with like account-based marketing. Um, and that's kind of the, the point of what account-based marketing has 
really the, what it's doing. <laughs> um, but I think that alignment goes so much further than just sales and marketing, um, especially in, in my specific space. Like, you know, you have product and engineering, you have customer success, you have sales, um, and you have marketing. And these are all, to some extent, customer facing functions. Um, like product, you know, you could argue product and engineering aren't, but I would say that products should be customer facing to an extent, like they should be conducting customer interviews. They should be seeing how customers are using the product, where they're getting stuck, where they're seeing success. Like they need to understand the customer um, just as much as sales and marketing. So I think alignment needs to go way past that. And um, it's within sales and marketing specifically though, um, you know, that's a, that's a unique relationship. And I've been in many cases, like I've been in so many cases where marketing is tied to just a lead number. And that's really our only KPI. It's like what we're ultimately measured on. It's ultimately what the CMO is measured on. And it's, it's just disconnected from everything else. I don't really like when marketing is tied to a lead number. I think that marketing needs to be tied to a revenue number. Um, and that just doing that little paradigm shift will change the relationship between sales and marketing, because now you're actually looking at the full funnel together, right? You're looking at the full experience together from all the way from awareness to close customer. And then once you bring in customer success in the SaaS space, you're looking at expansion opportunity and, and retention opportunity, right? But on that first part of it, um, when you're looking at revenue, then marketing is going to be concerned with what types of leads, what types of accounts they're going after, they're bringing in, um, because they want to see that close rate go up. And, and then they're tied to that actual revenue number, because otherwise it's, you know, it's, hey, marketing, you need to generate a thousand leads, sales, you need to close 10% of those. Well, marketing can generate a thousand leads like you give them a budget they're going to go get a thousand leads um but they may not be qualified and so what happens then and i've seen this happen many times is sales will say hey marketing uh it's your fault the leads you're generating are garbage <laughs> and we can't close them and marketing is like what are you talking about we generated all of these leads for you why are you not closing them you are terrible at your jobs right you don't know how to sell <laughs> I've actually seen those conversations happen. So um, it, when, you tie a when you tie marketing to revenue, right? Like sales is, is always going to be tied to revenue. I mean, they always have been. But when you tie marketing to revenue, then it instantly creates some alignment there. I have a friend and a mentor in the marketing world, and she was exploring a new opportunity. And I had suggested to her from my sales perspective that when she was interviewing and, and coming at this company to try to stand out and be distinctive a little bit, I suggested that she put some sort of commission in her comp plan as if she was a salesperson and say, look, I'm so confident in the, the marketing being tied to revenue that I'll take a, a slightly lower base salary and here's how we're gonna measure this, here's how we're gonna do this and convert it. And then kind of putting her skills and her money where her mouth is, but also then 
getting that reward of closing that. And I, I think she ended up presenting that, but then like the more she talked to the, like the CEO just found out he was nuts and didn't take the job. But I was like, <clears throat> but yeah, I think, I think it's a brilliant idea to understand each other's perspective. And, mm-hmm. um, I'm always, I've always been a huge fan of putting salespeople in the marketing meetings and taking marketing people out on sales calls. And they're like, wow. And it just, it, it builds camaraderie first and foremost, but it also allows people to see each other's perspective. And I think it just makes for a much better experience. Definitely. Yeah. I, I love, I love the taking a lower salary and tying, tying revenue to it. I mean, I think most marketing most marketing salaries could be tied to revenue and um, marketers are going to be happier because traditionally sales has made a lot more money than, than like a, a sales rep has made a lot more money than a marketer, right? Traditionally. So um, when you give some ownership though, there to the revenue number and reward them based on it and incentivize them, you're just going to see amazing things happen. Um, so yeah, huge fan of that. And then you also mentioned getting marketers on, on sales calls, which is so important. I mean, it's crazy how many organizations are are just so detached right there. I mean, marketers are marketing to a customer base that they don't talk to, they don't know, right? And then the people that are speaking with the actual customers are siloed away from marketing. So it hurts your go-to-market strategy, right? I mean, I think marketers need to be on sales calls, even if it's one a week, you know, and even if it's recorded, right? right? Not, they don't even need to be live. They don't need to be sitting there. They, they could just listen to a recording of a sales call as a marketing team and then talk about it together. The marketing team can say, Hey, what did you notice about this prospect? Right? Where are their pain points? Where can we change our go-to-market strategy to better align with what our prospects pain points are? Um, and, and as you do that, then, you're going to naturally start focusing on lead quality, not lead quantity. And it's going to reduce your cost of acquisition because you're not going to be just running after a bucket of leads. You're going to be running after quality leads. And, um, you know, I think a sales team would rather have 100 highly qualified leads that are going to close at a, you know, three to 10 times higher rate than a thousand leads, right? Because they have to work through those thousand leads and it can be a complete waste of their time. So if you, if you're begin delivering high quality leads to a marketing team, even if it's fewer of them, the sales team's going to be much happier because they're spending less time sifting and they're spending more time actually closing and making commission. So they're going to make more money in the end too. Um, And another interesting thing too is on, as far as the sales calls go, I think, especially in a software organization, like having engineers on the call, right? Mm, Listening to sales calls, knowing, (laughs) knowing the customer. Um, I've just, it's, it's crazy how quickly each function of an organization will become siloed and they don't know who they're developing for. They don't know who they're creating for. Um, marketing doesn't know who they're marketing to, or they, they have this like idea of who they're marketing to, but it, it's, it could be wrong because they're not actually seeing who's coming in and talking to the, talking to sales and who's actually closing, who's talking to customer success managers, um, who's expanding, right? Like who are these high value customers 
that are coming in and how can we get more of them? This, and I think in analogies, and this one just popped into my head when you're talking about getting engineers involved, it is in some organizations I've been in, it's almost as if people are playing poker where they are guessing what the other players have with the, mm. the customers. But beyond that, there's, they're sitting in cubicles. They can't see each other and they're, you know, there might not even be anybody playing that hand in that other cubicle. You can't even see it. You're just guessing and making approximations. And I think what we're both talking about is like, let's put everybody at the same table, customers included, and we're all working on a puzzle together and yep. understanding. And because that's ultimately what it is, because <clears throat> you have to find out if your puzzle piece being your piece of software, your application, your service, whatever it is, is even a piece that they want. Do they even have a puzzle? And if they do, how do you, how do you truly make it fit in that precise cut and not just, you know, ram it in with a mallet? <laughs> totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think, I think one thing that, you know, a lot of, a lot of organizations fail to do is actually take the time to develop their, their ideal customer profile, right? Their ICP. Mm. And a lot of, in my experience, I've seen a lot of people, even executives think that an, an ICP is personas and they're not, they're different. Right. So an ICP is like specific characteristics in the B2B space. It's specific characteristics about a business that make up your best customer, right? These are businesses that are, have, they have the highest lifetime value. They most likely have the highest close rate. They have, they have a great expansion rate, a great expansion opportunity. Um, and they're becoming advocates of your brand and referring others, right? So you're getting, you're getting some word of mouth marketing as well. Um, and the personas are actually the roles that make up the buying committee within that ideal customer profile. So personas are, are more of like, they're the actual people, they're the humans within the business. Right. And, um, I spending the time to create that, um, is, is so important because once you actually have that created, then you can take that and distribute it around the organization into the other functions, into product, into engineering, um, you know, into customer success, into sales. And one of the coolest things too about having that defined is it can get, like it, it gives your sales reps permission to say no to a prospect who isn't a good fit. So, I know that sound that may sound crazy, especially to a sales professional, but it's 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 so true because when you're bringing in bad fit customers, especially yes, yes. in a SaaS business, they cost you far more than the revenue in the door, right? Than that initial revenue in the door because they're they're just they're not a good fit. So they're going to require more support. They're going to require more handholding. They're going to require different onboarding. Um, they're going to be more high maintenance and in SAS retention and engagement, retention and engagement is the lifeblood, right? Cause churn is going to cripple a SAS business. Um, and it's, if you're selling into bad fit customers, 
then you're going to get into a really tough situation down the line where you have a higher churn rate, which is going to reduce the value of your company. And if you have, if you have low churn, your the value is just, it's crazy what it does, right? To your value. So, um, I'm a huge fan of, of creating that ICP, distributing that out, creating the personas within that ICP, um, who you're selling to, who's part of that buying committee, how does sales talk to them, how does customer success talk to them, how is marketing creating content for those people, um, and it's just going to create way better customers, lower your churn rate, increase your value and your revenue. So. One of the books that transformed my sales career was let's get real or let's not play. And uh, I also had a mentor that taught me, he's like, just pick two or three sales books and just wear them out. And I've, what I've seen are people that have Mm. a bookshelf of sales books and like (laughs) they never get past (laughs) chapter three. Right. (laughs) And so, uh, and this also comes from a lot of other like philosophy and skills where, you know, it just, there's a general that said like a a good plan or a a poor plan vigorously executed is way better than a perfect plan. Never executed. I'm I'm butchering the phrase, but so getting back to that book, they had their philosophy was that you go in to meet a potential customer and you don't have a deal and it's not something to be protected. It's something that has to be tested. And they had some certain phrasing in there that like, Hey, let's mutually explore to see if this is a fit or not. And they unpack the psychology of that and that or not phrase lets the air out of that balloon a little bit, because, you know, going back to the start of this conversation about not being trusted that salesperson is in there for one particular reason and to really oversimplify it is to separate that customer from their money and get that product or service in there. And by simply acknowledging that there may not be a next step, it, it it relieves the tension. And they also, as like the, the discussion goes and they have a particular line of questioning. And I still remember the first time I said this phrase, like, you know, those movies where they zoom in on somebody and like the heart rates in their ears and they're sweating and it's just like, it slows down. (laughs) So they going through this line of questioning, they coached in the book that if it's not a fit or you're getting red flags or something, say something. And I remember Mm -hmm. going through this 15, 20 minutes with this customer and then the things they were saying, the questions I was asking, it was not aligning. And I just remember going, I'm not thinking that this is a fit between our two businesses. And I just was like, it went black for like two seconds, JK. I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) Yep. But no, it led to a different discussion and it got us back on track. And we realized that what we were saying wasn't a fit, but we uncovered other problems that ultimately led to a better solution. And like you're saying, a like almost like an ICP in that moment. And it's not, yeah, it's not everybody that you need to talk to. It's the right people. Right. And it's interesting because, um, you know, especially in software and in any recurring business model, 
it's it's a relationship. You're entering a relationship. It's not a transactional sale. Yes. Right. So they. That's why it's so important um, because it it truly is a relationship. And in a lot of cases, a business, especially especially B two B, right? Like they're not really buying your software. They're buying your service, and it's they're buying the relationship with your organization that's going to help them be successful with the software. So that, you know, that's why customer success is so important because a lot of these, I mean, especially in like the marketing tech landscape, um, you know, a lot of these softwares are not super, super simple. They're very powerful. They can do a lot for you and you do need some help from a customer success manager to make sure you're getting that value out of it. So when you go pay tens of thousands of dollars for this software as a business, you're not paying tens of thousands of dollars just for the software. Like you expect to have that relationship and that ongoing conversation with someone from, from that brand to help you see success with their software. And uh, that's, that's just why it's so important. And even on the B2C side, right? I mean, you think of a clothing company, yeah, they're not necessarily a recurring business model, but they want repeat customers. So if you give them a bad experience, they may buy your socks one time, mm -hmm. right? But, oh man, it took 10 weeks for my socks to get here and <laughs> they aren't high quality. So I'm never going to go buy them again. But if you actually have a strong customer experience around that, then you can have recurring customers with your sock company, <laughs> right? So um, it's, it's so much more valuable. And I think we just need to like move away from these, this transactional approach and just getting money in the door for a product or service. Um, and really relationships are, are really what end up selling and creating valuable long-term, uh, revenue generating things. <laughs> yeah. Um, also another interesting point to your book thing. Uh, I totally agree with that. You know, I've seen so many people are like, man, I read 50 books this year and, or I have like this bookshelf of books and even if they get through <laughs> all of them, right? Even if they get through all of them, not just three chapters, knowledge is basically worthless unless you can put it into practice. So that's also interesting that you say that because, you know, I've had mentors that have said that to me as well. It's, hey, read a couple books a couple times and figure out how to take the knowledge out of that book and actually implement it, put it into practice in your day to day, into your business and, and see how the results are that you're generating. Because if you go read 15 books, you may have all this knowledge in your head, but you're not going to know necessarily how to implement it. Right. And it's basically worthless. So that's, that's a great, a great point that you made. I'm sick of these books, JK. I have to admit, like I have heard <laughs> so <the> many. <laughs> I've it, it, it's only um, man. I think I've probably got 20 books in my Audible account, and probably six or seven of those are business or sales or marketing or or, or books of that uh, genre. And I have heard them so many times. I wish I got a little commission for every time I've listened to them because it would be a nice mm -hmm. revenue stream, but. I just will be, well, haven't been in traffic for a long time, but when I was in the car and looking at the windshield and it's like, well, here's this chapter coming up. And like, I know what this author is going to say. And then 
all of a sudden it'll be that afternoon or a week later and it'll just fall out of my head like a, a bingo ball at the right time in the right context in the right situation. And then I'll go back and then trying to balance my ADD brain and saying, um, Oh, I don't need new shiny. I need to just keep whittling on this to it goes to a point. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's information overload and it's just really about being effective. Right. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. I actually, uh, it's funny in college, I went through like a, a bout of insomnia, right? Like, I mean, I, my schedule was so whack. Like I just couldn't sleep, um, was waking up at 4am and like couldn't fall asleep till 2am and all this stuff. So I'm like, man, I got to get this under control. And what I ended up doing, it's actually a, uh, it was a piece of advice from my brother. Um, but it was pick, pick a piece of, of audio content right whether it's music or a podcast or a book and you listen to it over and over and over and it actually ends up triggering your brain to like fall asleep so you you listen to this as you're falling asleep every night and so i started doing that and for the past eight years i have always fallen asleep to a book or a podcast Mm -hmm. like listening to a book or podcast and typically I'll listen to the same one for like two weeks straight every night. Um, one of my favorite <laughs> ones to do it with is how I built this. It is, that's a phenomenal podcast. Um, and it's just so cool to like listen to the stories. And so I, Spanx is actually one of them, which is funny that you brought that up. But uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I know, I know the stories of many very highly successful brands like the back of my hand, because I've listened to them so many times, <laughs> but it's, it's awesome. Um, it's great. I listen to stuff you should know. And if I ever meet these guys, I'm like, I've heard some like last night I was having trouble falling asleep too and rolled over, I think like at four and started another podcast of theirs. But I would just joke with these guys and I would say, I've heard typically 10 minutes of each of your hour long episodes because I'm just out but I'll go back. Like I've listened to the one, I think it was, um, Oh, labor unions. Like I've, I've hit play on that one probably four times and it's just, I'm gone. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, and I, yeah. Cause my brain, if I don't, if I don't feed it and challenge it and if I don't exercise during the day, my brain, we, it lays down and it's like, all right, let's go. Let's start solving problems. And that podcast just gives me something else to focus on and then I'm gone. Yep. Exactly. Totally works. Um, you know, one, one other thing I actually just thought of bringing it back to, to the sales and, and the ICDP and uh, your, in your story actually of how you're like, man, this, this isn't a good fit customer. One thing is not, you know, not forcing a sale. Right. So like, in that yep. moment, when you figured out that they were not part of your ICP uh, and you knew like, man, this probably isn't going to be a great fit customer, offering them a different solution is huge, right? So here's the thing. You want to continue to create a great experience with your brand, even if you're not going to enter a relationship with them. So I've actually, I mean, 
you know, before, when I was a director of marketing operations in, in a previous role, I took so many demos because I was building out a marketing tech stack and I was just, there's 8,000 plus marketing tech tools in the marketplace right now, which is mind blowing. Um, but being on all of these calls and 99% of the time they would try to force a sale. Like it, it was crazy. And even if the features weren't in alignment with the goals, right. With what I wanted to accomplish. And I can count on one hand, how many told me that, Hey, we're not going to be a good fit, but I, I remember those brands and I respect them. Right. I'm like, man, this, this was a great experience because they actually sent me to a competitor. They're like, Hey, I don't know that you're a great fit for us at this time, but you might want to go check out this, this brand, right? This, this customer or this, uh, yeah, this brand, they're a competitor of ours, but I think that they're more in line with what you want to accomplish. And to me, that's just like instantly I trust them more. It's breaking down that sales, <laughs> that, that idea that salespeople are just like so untrustworthy and I respect the brand. Right. And they, they created a great experience for me, even though I didn't enter a relationship with them. Right. And I, I'll say something similar on the, before the meeting or during the initial meeting and it's evolving from that. Let's get real book and say, look, I'm here to form a relationship and in, mm-hmm. in, and I'll say, look, this is kind of an extreme case. Rarely it's like this, but if it's a coin flip between having your business or having your respect, I'd rather have your respect. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's not a, a sales script and it's not a tactic that I use because I'm trying to establish a, um, a values and a character based fit with me and that individual, but also with those two companies. And if I'm the face of the company in that meeting room, well, I want to communicate the company's values and ethics and morals and do it as the embodiment of that. And just tell them like, look, I'll, I know you've been burned before, but like, I'm here to just shoot you straight and tell you if we can help you or not. And, and it, it, and I can walk out of meetings and just, even if I didn't win the business, I won their respect. And that's, that's super important to me. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I wanted to get back to something that I was really excited about to talk to you about, and then marketing the customer experience in B2B and SaaS, because it's not something that you can hold in your hand necessarily. It's not something you can wear, eat, smell, what is that approach to that particular product set like in terms of the customer experience and their journey and just how do you approach that? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, I think so many marketing, so many marketers try to force a funnel, right? Like they, they try to force this ideal customer journey through a funnel and that's just not how it works. <laughs> um, it, every buyer is so different and um, it, you need to provide value to them in a contextual way, like, like when, it, when it's important to the buyer. So 
I see marketing as the owner and sustainer of experiences across the entire customer life cycle. So it's not just the creator of messages, right? We've, as we talked about earlier, we've moved past that. Marketing is not here to create messages. We're here to create experiences. We're here to align with all the other functions in, in an organization that are customer facing and uh, create a connected and cohesive, consistent experience for a consumer across a brand. Um, I think a huge, a huge thing is that brand is the sum of all experiences, right? So um, creating that, that cohesive experience is so important and that's what's going to move prospects through the funnel. Um, and instead of trying to force them like, oh, they need, to, they need to read this piece of top of funnel content. Then they need to read this piece of middle of funnel content. Then they need to schedule a call, like a demo. And then we need to send them this specific use case. And voila, we have a perfect customer who has a super high lifetime value. And they love us like that. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> um, so another interesting uh, thing that's happening is the role of the customer experience officer, uh, the CXO, right? And yeah. the idea here is that they report directly to a CEO and they have sway over all of those customer facing operations. They don't necessarily you know, they don't, they're not the boss of them. Like they, these product and marketing and sales, they don't all roll up to this person, but this person has authority, right? They have sway and they're making sure that all these experiences that are being created in these different functions actually are consistent. Um, and it doesn't feel like, you know, as a, as a consumer, you don't want to feel like you're moving from marketing to sales and then sales to customer success. Like you wanna feel like, okay, I've had this awesome, consistent, cohesive experience with this brand. And like it, it builds trust, right? And yep. it, creates, um, it creates brand advocates. Yeah, it's like how they were taken care of and right. the, just the, the journey with and the experience along the line with your your product. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Totally. And, and it, you can, you can do it really, really well. And you can actually create community around a specific pain point even, right? So a specific pain point that you solve for and, and creating community around that. I mean, I, one of the, one that I always look to that I think did an amazing job of this um, is actually, it's a, account-based marketing software. It's called Terminus. Um, and they really kind of, they, they didn't, they didn't create account-based marketing, right. But they, they kind of brought it up and, and created the category around it and started educating the market on it. Um, and they really just strived to create community around it. And, um, Sangram Vajre, the, one of the co-founders of Terminus created the flip my funnel community. And it's crazy because they they started this flip my funnel conference and they invited their competitors, right? They invited their competitors to speak, to, to sponsor it. And they just, 
they put all that aside and they're like, we want to create community around account-based marketing, around sales and marketing alignment. And we don't care if you go with a competitor, we just want you to be successful. And because of that, they have a lot of respect, right? Even, even people that aren't using Terminus, they still have a lot of respect and uh, a lot of respect for Terminus. Um, so I think that when you have your ICP defined, when you have your pain points defined, you can begin to create community around that. And you can also elevate certain roles within that community, within your ICP. And they don't even need to be a customer. Like I think of Marketo and how they, um, they'll basically have like the marketing ops awards, right? And it's like all of these marketing ops managers that are being recognized are not necessarily Marketo users. They've just done great things in the marketing ops world. And they're creating that community around it, which is so much more powerful than, you know, speaking bad things about your competition and then just trying to <laughs> go and just take the market and take all the customers like that. Yeah, I just, it, yeah, that irks me when, when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> so something, uh, Tyler, your brother and I have talked about a lot is culture and mm -hmm. he is a firm believer. And I, I agree that when he's looking at like the code that is written in a company, he can get a sense for their culture mm. and how much does the company culture affect the marketing? And can you see culture just from like another company's messaging and marketing? Absolutely. 100%. Like it's so easy to tell when a brand has alignment across functions in their content and like in what they produce, um, there, yeah, there are some great brands I can think of that just, they do it so well and they have their employees on LinkedIn, right? Like subject matter experts within their, within their very specific roles and functions. And they're all creating consistent messaging around these topics it's it's kind of mind-blowing actually and they've also found that this actually goes into another thing um, they found that 135 employees have further reach than a brand right so like having 135 employees has further reach than a brand with like a million followers and wow it's it's crazy because it, i when i go on linkedin and I look at a brand page versus the employees that make up that brand, they have far more engagement on their posts, right? People aren't really liking and commenting on brands posts, <laughs> but they're engaging with the employees of that brand. And over time, like that influences, that influences people. Um, and they start to see a brand as an authority because they may have engaged with a marketing from a certain from a certain organization and oh they also engaged from a sales rep from that organization and maybe even an engineer from that organization and they're like wow this brand knows they know what they're talking about they know what they're doing um i respect them i like them and if i'm ever in the market for the software that they they provide then i'm going to definitely check them out do you think that's because it's people versus a logo or mm -hmm. the company Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's human. 
Like you can, you can relate to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my mind is just, you know, I'm excited to get into these books that you've mentioned. My mind is just (laughs) Mm -hmm. like, I love conversations like this. This is so fun. Um, well, let's, I know we're at an hour and I want to be respectful of your time on Saturday and, uh, Mm -hmm. I'll post links to your, to these books we mentioned. I'll post links to your profile and flat file and, um, just have people reach out and connect with you. Cause I just, again, that's one of the joys of this podcast is that I've made friends with everybody I've interviewed along the way and Mm -hmm. just connecting them in a, a very deep and legitimate uh, way is just one of the joys of doing this. And I'm thankful that you made the time and and reminded me that I forgot (laughs) about doing this. (laughs) Yeah. No, thank you for having me. It's been great. I love talking about this stuff and it's, it's super important. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like to polish up my skill set and do like a part two and just go super deep into one of these topics and just maybe get nuts and bolts and granular and procedural and um, yeah, make it more of like a tutorial. If you'd be up for that, I think that'd be really fun. Yeah, totally. Maybe we could walk through, you know, creating an ideal customer profile and personas and, and how that can create a unified front from all customer facing functions. Ooh, yeah. Be a good one. I'm making a note of that. Yeah, that'd be, that would be awesome. Well, cool. Um, JK Sparks, it's been uh, great getting to, you know, meet you and getting to know you. So thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Thank you. If you like this show, I have two requests. One is to share it with someone and make sure that they know what a podcast is and how to get it. Either show them iTunes or Spotify and The second request is let me know if there's somebody that you would like to be interviewed in your personal circle. Uh, People ask me all the time where I find these guests and they're friends on Facebook, friends on LinkedIn. Uh, I see uh, news articles and I simply reach out and talk to them and ask them if they'd want to tell their story. So Uh, this podcast was founded on the premise that you don't have to be rich and famous to tell a compelling story. And if there's somebody in your world that uh, you think would be a great interview, I guarantee you they would be. And just shoot me a note at podcast at the warmfront.com and let's hook it up. Thanks.